to us which is never failing. We bless you, Father. We worship you, Lord Jesus. And we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to move in our services and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of scriptures this morning, Mark chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 8. We've been teaching a series on the subject of faith, and we want to continue to do that this morning. Mark chapter 11, verse 22, or Mark chapter 11, tells us the story of when Jesus was passing by on his way from Jerusalem to Bethany, that he saw a fig tree afar off and it had leaves on it, which is usually a sign that there would or should be figs and uh, fruit on the tree. But he gets there and finds out it's just figs, no fruit. And so he curses it. He says to the fig tree, no man eat fruit of thee, eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And the next morning, according to verse 20, as they passed by, came by the same place again. They saw the fig tree, but now it's not green leaves anymore. It's dried up from the root. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. Now, folks, from verse 22, we can see clearly that Jesus is trying to explain to them how something happened. The implied question when Peter draws it to Jesus, remembers or points out the tree, Master, the tree which you cursed is withered away. There seems to be, or Jesus understood there to be, an implied question. How did this work? How did this happen? Because Jesus begins to give them that information. He doesn't say to them that, it, that this happened, that this special miracle took place because he was the Son of God. He doesn't exalt himself in this any way whatsoever. He doesn't draw attention to him in this action. He tells them what they can do. He says, have the faith of God. Now, the implied subject would be you. You have the faith of God. And then he describes what that faith is like. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this tree, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, folks, who does whosoever mean? Verily I say unto you that whosoever. Again, he doesn't say me because I'm the son of God. He doesn't say for someone that is specially anointed to do miracles, this is how it works. He says it works for whosoever. Whosoever surely means me and you. And that's the whole point that he's making. And the point is, needs to be understood that this was the way that Jesus dealt with his disciples in everything. You can't find one thing that Jesus did that he did not either tell or demonstrate to his disciples that anybody could do this. The church world, by and large, has the idea, <coughs> the wrong idea, that Jesus came to the earth to prove he was the Son of God, and the way he proved he was the Son of God was doing the healings and the miracles which are recorded in the four Gospels. And folks, that's just not true. Jesus did not come to prove that he was the Son of God. 
Jesus came to show us, to reveal to us the Father. He came to show us by his works, by his action, and by his teachings just exactly who God is and how he operates. There's only one place in the Gospels <coughs> where Jesus gave any indication whatsoever that his work was something that was special and that others couldn't do the same work. And that was when John and James and John's mother came to Jesus and requested for her sons to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus in glory. Jesus asked her a question. He said, are they able to partake of the cup that I shall drink from? Well, she didn't know what that was. She didn't know what Jesus had come to do. Jesus is saying, as a sacrifice for man, as a substitute for man, I've got a work to do that nobody else can do. But outside of that, folks, and we could well understand why that would be the case. His was righteous blood. Nobody else's was. He was a righteous man. He was born of a virgin. So he bypassed the law of sin and death that came upon all men because of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. But outside of that one thing that he said to, to James and John's mother about his work, his substitutionary work for mankind, everything else he did, he made provisions for his disciples to do it too. Even up to the point where Peter asked when they saw Jesus walking on the water in the middle of the night, where Peter asked, if it's you, tell me to come on the water to, so I can walk out there too. And Jesus said, come, and Peter came. Now, he didn't fulfill it. He didn't finish the work. He began to doubt in the process. The wind and the waves shook him up and robbed from him the miracle that he was already involved in. Everything Jesus did, he taught that we could do too. Everything. Now turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 tells us the story of the centurion who comes to Jesus. We'll pick up the reading in verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. And saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to the man, Go, and he goes, to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no not in Israel. Now, folks, I want you to recognize the relationship, the connection between faith and authority. It was this man's understanding of authority that caused Jesus to say, this is the biggest faith I've found in anybody. The implication is it should be among the Jews or somebody that has this kind of great faith should be among the Jews or from the Jewish people. But here Jesus says, I found it in a Gentile, not a Jew. Now, what was the centurion's understanding of authority? That words have to be carried out when they're spoken by the one who has authority. Clearly, he understood from what he had 
either witnessed or heard about Jesus, that Jesus had authority over the devil. He clearly understood that Jesus had authority over sickness and disease. And as a result, he said, speak the word only. All it takes is the spoken word. Because here's what the, uh, the uh, centurion understood. The exercise of authority is by speaking words. The exercise of authority is by speaking words. Now, folks, I talk a lot about authority. And the reason I do is because Jesus did. We understand in Matthew chapter 7, the last two verses of the chapter, after Jesus has been expounding for some time what we know of as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus concludes that message by talking about the man that built his house on the rock as opposed to the one that built his house on the sand. You know what? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. It's just back a page from where we were. I need to point this out. And I know I say this a lot, and you may be thinking, he's not going to say it again, is he? But yeah, I am. Notice verse 28. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, folks, I want you to see something. In, uh, in my online Bible, the one that I use, it's got a little heading just above verse 28 where it says the authority of Jesus. Well, most everybody that I know of thinks of it in that term. They see the things that Jesus spoke, and they come away with the idea that the people in Jesus' day during the, the four Gospels, the time we lived here on the earth, the people of the earth that were partners or a part of participants in his services were astonished at him because he had supernatural or spectacular power. And I'm sure that's the case on a lot of occasions. But here it doesn't say they were astonished at him because he had power. It says they were astonished at his doctrine. They were astonished at his teachings. And then it tells us why. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now notice in your King James Bible, if that's the one you're using, the word one is in italics. Anytime something is in italics in the King James translation, it means the translators added it. The word one is not there. It literally reads, he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. Now if you look up the word as and have, you'll find out that the word as is a word that refers to the method of something being done. Or we might say how something is done. The word having means to hold. So when it says the people were astonished at Jesus' doctrine, the explanation for why they were so astonished is because Jesus taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Now, the implication is the scribes taught the weakness of man. The implication is the scribes taught how impotent man is, how unworthy, how unable man is, which is pretty much where the devil wants to keep us all, isn't it? 
thinking that same thing. But Jesus taught that man had authority. We just referred to the preceding verses in chapter 7 where Jesus talked about the man that built his house on the rock, the rock being the, the word of God, as opposed to the person that built his house on the sand. Same storm, same wind, same rain came down upon both of them. But the one whose house was built on the rock, his house stood. The one whose house was built on the sand, it fell. So obviously he's talking about circumstances of life that come against all of us. And he's talking about the choices that we make that determine whether the storm is going to sweep us away or whether we're going to be able to stand strong through the storms of life. Well, that's teaching that man has authority, isn't it? He doesn't say God picks who stands and who falls. And if God is the one that chooses who stands and who falls, but Jesus didn't tell us, but instead told us that it was up to us, it was up to mankind to exercise authority for what they will have in their life and in their experiences, then Jesus did us a disservice and he lied. That's impossible for Jesus to lie, isn't it? This scripture, along with many others, show us that Jesus taught that man had authority. Now, do you remember the purpose for man being made and created in the first place? Genesis 1.26 says that after God created everything else on the sixth day of creation before he rested from all of his works, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. The only place you can find, this is the only place you can find in the Bible that tells what man's purpose was designed to be. Why God created man. I know there are things that, that uh, I heard in Sunday school like God was lonely so he created man. Folks, if God was lonely without man, then God's not God. If God was incomplete in any way whatsoever, I don't doubt that he wanted to fellowship with man. Certainly that's the end result of what he did by putting man here on the earth. Thank God we have the ability, the privilege to fellowship with him. But God created man for a single purpose, and that is to have authority on the earth, to exercise authority here on the earth, to have authority over all the works of his hands. Well, what are all the works of his hands? Everything about this physical realm. God made man in his own image and after his own likeness. These words are difficult for us to accept because they really mean that God made man an exact duplication of himself. The angels aren't a duplication of God. The angels don't have authority. The angels are servants of God, and they do what we tell them to do, and they accomplish the work that God has directed them for or toward. So when the Bible says God was made a little lower than the angels, it really means God, was made, uh, God made man a little lower than himself, above the angels. The Bible says that the angels desire to look into your salvation. They know you've got something better than they do. The Psalms tell us 
that when God made man, the angels were standing by. And they asked the question, at least one of them did, is recorded in Scripture. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou hast visited him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. The King James says angels, but it's the, uh, Greek, or the Hebrew word Elohim, which means God himself. So you have made him a little lower than yourself and given him authority over all the works of your hands. The angels look at that and say, what in the world is going on? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Why did you give man authority on the earth? That was the question from the angels. God made man specifically. He designed this world system specifically so that man would exercise authority over the earth or at least have the ability to exercise authority over the earth. And folks, the exercise of that authority is by the speaking of words. Not words according to what you see or feel, but words that the Bible refers to us and reveals to us. So the exercise of authority is speaking God's word from your heart. And without that, there is no exercise of authority whatsoever. Without that, there can be no exercise of authority whatsoever. Look with me to Mark chapter 4. Beginning in verse 35, it says, The same day when the evening was come, he said unto them, talking to his disciples, Let us pass over to the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind. And the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Now, folks, this, in my opinion, in my estimation, where it says a great storm of wind, it literally means megastorm. The Greek word mega is there. We understand what mega means because we attach it to a lot of things. It means something out of, out of the ordinary big. So this great storm of wind arose. I believe it was a supernatural thing where Jesus has just begun to enter into his earthly ministry. He's starting to do miracles and signs and wonders and the devil tries to stop him. The devil must have been behind the storm. God couldn't have been behind the storm because Jesus rebuked it. If Jesus rebuked something God did, that makes him a sinner and working contrary to the purpose of God. There arose a great storm of wind and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And Jesus was in the back part of the ship asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, folks, why in the world would Jesus say to the disciples, Why don't you have any faith? What did they have faith for? They had faith for Jesus to help them if they could wake him up. I don't think they woke Jesus up to watch him die. What's the point in being awake for that? But they've already seen enough miracles. They've seen enough of the supernatural 
to know that Jesus is a different guy. But notice Jesus responds to them. How is it that you have no faith? Now, folks, help me out here. Is it possible that this would mean anything else than Jesus saying, why would you have to wake me up for this? What else could he be saying? Jesus is indicating to them. Again, correct me if I'm wrong here. But I clearly see that Jesus is saying, you didn't need me for this. You didn't need me to rebuke the storm. You didn't need me to take care of something going on. Why didn't you do it yourself? And remember, Jesus taught his disciples on many occasions, which means he had to know it already by this time. Whether they did or not, we don't know. But Jesus knew what he would teach them on multiple occasions. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say, to the mountain be removed, or to the tree be plucked up by the roots, or to the storm be, peace be still. When Jesus says that they have, or asks the question, why have you no faith? He's saying from the, works in your, your, the words that you spoke and the actions that you took indicated that they didn't believe they had the authority to do something in this situation. And Jesus calling it, to, calling it into question says, you didn't need me. Now, is there anything else that could mean? I don't want to misinterpret any scripture. But is there any other interpretation that would fit this story? I can't see it. And in fact, the way that this implication is made reminds us of some other situations that the Bible confirms. You remember in the Old Testament, after Israel was set free by, uh, from the hand of Egypt, the slavery of Egypt, they come to the Red Sea. They're pinned in. They've got mountains on one side, mountains on the other side, the Egyptian army behind them, and the Red Sea in front of them. The people realize that they're in a death trap. So they cry out against Moses. And Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord turns to God and says, Lord, what are you going to do? And the Lord says, why are you crying out unto me? Now, I know that I say this a lot, but that seems to me to be the perfect time to cry out to the Lord. But God rebukes him. What are you crying out to me for? You're the one that has the rod in your hand, which I told you at the time that appeared to you in the burning bush, that that was the sign of my power. That was the symbol of my power. What are you coming to me for? Instead, stretch the rod over the waters and they'll part. And they did. Now, folks, what's the difference in that situation in the book of Exodus where God said, why criest thou unto me? Stretch forth your rod and divide the sea. And Jesus saying to the disciples in the middle of the storm, why don't you have any faith? And then speaking to the storm and said, peace, be still. Tell me the difference. There is no difference. There's no difference whatsoever. So Jesus began to teach his disciples from the, the very beginning that man has authority on the earth. 
Man has authority on the earth. Man was designed to have authority on the earth. You were given authority here on this earth. Now, I want you to look with me to another scripture. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll start reading in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I would submit to you that you can't be strong in the Lord or in the power of his might unless you know the authority that's been given to you as a human being. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You see that word wiles? If you look it up in the concordance, you'll find that it means method. And in the original Greek, this phrase, the wiles of the devil, refers to a road that's traveled. It literally means traveling over. So where it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, it's literally saying, put on the armor of God so that you'll be able to stop the devil on the road that he travels. The road that he travels. Obviously, it's a road of traveling against us to defeat us, to rob us of what God has done for us, to keep us from having the blessings that Jesus has already paid for. So how does he do that? What road does the devil travel? Now, the Bible is pretty specific here, saying he only travels one road. So if he only travels one road, and we learn how to defend against the one road that he travels, that should set us up for life to be able to defeat him in any and every situation that we encounter, right? So what road does he travel? Well, you may recall in the original sin in the Garden of Eden, he tempted Eve by saying, you won't die if you eat the forbidden fruit. God knows that your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. So what road did he travel against Adam and Eve? He lied to them about themselves. Because God already made man in the image and likeness of himself. He made man and woman an exact duplicate in kind of himself. But the devil is telling him, telling her, you're not an exact duplicate of God. But if you eat of this tree that God planted in the garden, where they clearly and easily had access to, then you'll be like him. You may recall also that in Isaiah 14, this is one of the things the devil said when he originated sin on his own. He said, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend upon uh, uh, my throne above the heavens, and I will be like the Most High. That's what the devil wanted. That's what he was after to begin with. Now, it was impossible because he had not been made in the image and likeness of God. Even the original angels, even the devil himself, was created lower than what God made Adam to be in the Garden of Eden. So he lied to her about who they were. God said, you're in my image and in your, you're in my likeness. You're an exact duplicate in kind which is the law of Genesis. Everything produces after its own kind. God produced after his own kind too. 
That's what man was. So the temptation and the road that the devil traveled that ultimately resulted in man using his authority against God rather than for it or toward him was a lie about who they were. We know that same thing to be true in the Numbers 13 account. When the children of Israel come to the edge of the promised land and send 12 spies in, 10 of them came back with an evil report saying, we can't do it. They specifically said, the people in the land are stronger than us. We are in our own side as grasshoppers, and so we are in their side. How did the devil influence them? He lied to them about who they were. He lied to them about who they were. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 tells us about Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth. I'm going to start reading in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he says, These scriptures are talking about me. He's clearly presenting himself as the Messiah. They know these are messianic scriptures. They know this is part of Isaiah's prophecy. It's Isaiah chapter 61 in our Bibles. He's saying this is about me. Let's read how they accepted him or what they did responded to him. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb. Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. They've heard about the healings and the miracles which he's done in Capernaum then, haven't they? They're not surprised about who he is. They're not surprised when he comes to their town. They've already heard him or heard of him. His reputation has preceded him. So you'll say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now, folks, let me stop here long enough to point something out. If Jesus had been doing healings and miracles in Capernaum, and we don't know what healings or miracles those would be, but it's enough for the word to have traveled to their city, to Nazareth. And if Jesus did the miracles and the healing works in Capernaum because he was the Son of God or by his own faith, then he would certainly be able to do the same thing in Nazareth. And that's what they're waiting for. 
They're looking at this situation saying, well, he was a miracle worker in Capernaum. Be a miracle worker here. And Jesus says, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and when famine was throughout the land. But none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving name in the prophet. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him under the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. It wasn't his time to be killed. Now I want you to look with me also to Matthew, uh, to excuse me, Mark chapter six. I want to read this story. This is Mark's account of the same occurrence, the same place, the same time. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. Well, we know what he taught. Luke four tells us that. He began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? He's teaching them things that they've never heard before. Now, if Jesus is consistent, then he's teaching two things. He's teaching that he's anointed of the Holy Ghost to overcome the power of the devil and the things that hold mankind bound, and he's teaching them that man has authority. He's not teaching them that he's the Son of God even though he used scriptures in Luke chapter 4 that pertain to the Messiah. The point is not I'm the Messiah. The point is I'm anointed of God. So it's God's will. It's God's desire. It's God's plan for people that are held in bondage to sickness or disease or anything else to be free. Now, why would God want that? Because man was made in the image and likeness of God. Man was given authority here on the earth. And any time and every time that man, any man, any woman, any boy, any girl, fails to exercise their authority to be free from that bondage is a slap in God's face. God made you to have authority, not for you to be held under bondage. So anything and everything that holds man under bondage is an affront to God and his power. It's an affront to God and his purpose for mankind. How does the devil keep us bound? He lies to us about who we are. He lies to us about who God is. So he began to teach in synagogues. Let me keep reading here. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this that is given to him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not all his sisters with us here? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. You can clearly see this is the same situation. Luke goes into much more detail, but Mark gives us some final words that put the thing together for us. Notice verse 5. And he could there do no mighty work. Now, folks, I know a lot of the church, most of the modern-day church, thinks that God can do anything. 
and that Jesus, when he was here on the earth, because he was the Son of God, could do anything. But here it says that he could there do no mighty work. doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says that he could not. He had no ability to do it there. But Luke 4 tells us that he just said he was anointed of the Holy Ghost to do signs and wonders and miracles. Notice why he could not do any mighty work in Nazareth. And he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief and he went round about the villages teaching. He marveled at their unbelief. Now folks, Faith and belief are the same thing. So he marveled at them not having any faith. What does that mean? Well, we saw from Matthew chapter 8 with the centurion's understanding of authority. And we understand that the exercise of authority is the spoken word. So Jesus marveled because they would not choose to be free. He marveled because they would not speak words of freedom. They would not speak words of agreement. It would have been real easy for them to say, you know, this is the least likely person we would expect these things to come from. But if that's what God wants, have at it, man. And just that much would have given Jesus free course to perform the will of God in their town. But you know what they're demanding? They're demanding a show because they don't think that he could be the Messiah because they know his family. They misunderstood the Messiah. They misunderstood the virgin birth. They, must, they misunderstood what his purpose would be here on the earth. And as a result, they chose from their own words, by their own lips, they chose to forfeit the very reason and the purpose and the benefits of why Jesus was sent to the earth. They forfeited. Now turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made hold of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Wilt thou be made whole? Now, folks, we know he didn't. Most of the people of Jesus' day didn't, probably. But we know that it's the will of God for everybody to be whole. We know it's the will of God for none of the people of God to be sick. We know that Jesus paid the price for sickness and disease just like he paid the price for sin and death. We know these things. This guy doesn't know. So Jesus seems to think that he's got a choice to make. 
concerning his healing. He's got a choice to make. Now, folks, how foreign is that to what most of the church world thinks now? That's completely opposite. Most of the church world thinks that it's God's will one way or the other, whether we're sick or, we or whether we're well. Most Christians think that if a Christian is, is sick or diseased in some way or another, that must be the will of God for them. There are mighty few Christians around the world that really understand that man has a choice in how things are going to be in their life. Jesus seems to think this guy has one. Wilt thou be made whole? What have you decided about your condition? Well, the man answers and says, I'm too slow to get in the water. He doesn't say, I'll never be well. He doesn't declare the, the healing power of God upon him. He doesn't even see Jesus. He must not even know who Jesus is. He doesn't even look at Jesus and say, well, I was without hope, but now you're here. The impotent man answered and said, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in the pool. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Well, I know a man that can do that for him. Only he's not going to put him in the water pool. The pool that Jesus puts him into is not the physical pool of Bethesda. Jesus says to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. Rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. There's a big dis difference between being neutral and being in unbelief. The man doesn't say, I can never be well. If he had said that, there would have been nothing Jesus could have done. This man, this crippled man, he knows that he's just one man away from having what God would want him to have. He knows it's the angel that's troubling the water, and the angel comes from God, so it must be God's will to heal periodically in this, well, certainly miraculous way, but it's kind of a strange way, too. So he trusts in the healing that comes from heaven. If he can just get somebody to put him into that pool, well, Jesus puts him into a different pool. He puts him in the pool of a righteous man's authority on the earth. Now, folks, think through this with me a little bit. When the Bible says Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory, he either did or he didn't. The Bible says he did. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that he made himself of no reputation and those Greek words in the original transcript literally means he set aside his heavenly power and glory. We know that had to be the case because when Jesus is praying in Luke 17, or in uh, John 17, when Jesus is praying after he's been with the disciples and told them about what was to come, just hours before he's betrayed and taken captive by the Romans, Jesus says to the Father, Restore unto me the glory that I had with you before the worlds were. Before the creation of the worlds, in other words. Well, if he's asking God to restore unto him power that he had from the beginning, then he must not have that power at present. 
or at the time that he prays. Well, that fits exactly with what the Bible says. He laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth to be a man. When Jesus gave credit, which he always did, to the miracles and the healings being the work of God through him rather than him, himself doing the works. If that's true, and again, if it's not, he's a liar and he's not worthy to be our Savior. His blood would not have been accepted as a, a, a sacrifice, a worthy sacrifice. So we know he's got to be telling the truth. So if he's not doing the healings and the works and the miracles because of the power that he had as the Son of God, how's he doing them? He's doing them, folks, as a righteous man, the way God intended for man to be on the earth when he made him and put him here in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is a righteous man under no bondage, under no restrictions by the law of sin and death that came on mankind because of Adam's sin. That's why the virgin birth is so important. If Jesus had not been born of a virgin, he would have been subject to the law of sin and death that passed on all men through Adam. But by being born of a virgin, it means here he is as a human being, righteous, having never sinned, and anointed of the Holy Ghost with power. So who did God originally intend to have authority here on this earth? Well, we can say mankind, and that's certainly true. But it goes a little further than that. God intended for man not to sin. He intended for man not to become unrighteous. He intended for man to be righteous and empowered by himself. And anybody you can find on the earth that's righteous by being made a part of God's family has access to the power of God to break every chain or every bondage of the enemy if we could just find somebody righteous turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. My favorite translation on this is he is a new species of being. Jesus came to the earth as a God-man. Jesus' sacrifice makes us God-men and women. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new species of being. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The word reconcile and the word recon uh, reconciliation both mean the same thing. They mean mutual exchange. That means there was an exchange made. God's system of justice required an exchange to be made. Well, let's see what that exchange was. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, 
and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Again, this is the word exchange. It means mutual exchange. It means somebody accepted something that wasn't theirs to give somebody else something that wasn't theirs to begin with. I know that's confusing. I'm not even sure what I said. It means there had to be a mutual exchange. Jesus had to give away his righteousness to us and take our unrighteousness on himself. And if it wasn't complete, it wasn't a real exchange. If there was any unrighteousness that was left on you and me, then it could not have been a real exchange. If there's any part of his righteousness that was not made for you and me or that we were not made unto, then it wasn't a real thing. That means the claims of justice, the eternal justice would have been perverted. Thank God that's not true. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. In other words, accept the exchange, the totality of the exchange. For, verse 21, he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus took all your unrighteousness. He took all the bondage of sin and death on himself, and he gave you his righteousness in return. He gave you his righteousness in return. Now, folks, the disciples in Jesus' day were able to do the works that they did. They were able to, to heal sickness and disease and to cast out devils because it was God's plan. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We'll close with this. Luke chapter 10. I'm going to back up and start in the verse, first part of the chapter, and then we'll skip over some things for the sake of time. Verse 1, after these things, the Lord appointed the other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. Therefore, he said unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Skip down with me to verse 8. He said, and into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Notice the city had to receive them. Nazareth, Nazareth rejected Jesus and so he was unable to do any mighty works there but Jesus has commissioned the disciples to go do the same things to be his front team front men so he said whatsoever city you enter and they receive you eat such things that are, as are set before you verse 9 and heal the sick that are therein and say unto them the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you but into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same city and say, even the very dust of your city which cleaves on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be you sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. In other words, he says, if you found other places like Nazareth where they won't receive you, tell them the kingdom of God came to you. The kingdom of God, which obviously includes healing the sick. The kingdom of God came to you and you rejected it by choice. Again, it comes to the choice of the individuals. That's the authority that man has. Man chooses 
to accept God's will or to reject God's will. Therefore, if man chooses to accept God's will, knowing that God's will is healing and deliverance, they're making a choice for healing and deliverance too. Skip with me over to verse 17. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now you will find if you read the verses that we skipped over, there's not one mention made of exercising authority over the devil by casting the devil out or anything of that matter. When the 70 return with joy, the only reason they would be joyful is if they had a successful campaign, which means they found cities that received them, which means they healed the sick that are therein and said the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Otherwise, what would they be joyful about? And then they found out, apparently through the experiences that they encountered while they were on this ministry campaign, apparently they came upon people that were evil, uh, possessed with evil spirits, and they cast out those spirits too. What else could it mean when the devils are subject unto, uh, unto us in your name? The 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. When did Satan fall? Did Satan fall when they went out? No, Satan fell. And the result of his fall is why he was here on the earth in the Garden of Eden. Satan fell as a result of rising up in rebellion against God, taking a third of the angels with him, and God destroying him, cast him out into the earth. So when Jesus says, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven, he's simply saying Satan has always been a defeated foe. Satan has never been a match for God or his power. Now, folks, think this through with me. If Jesus did healings and miracles because he was the Son of God, then only the sons of God would be able to do those works. Well, these guys aren't saved yet. Jesus hasn't opened the door to salvation for them or any of them. So then how are they able to heal the sick and cast out devils? They're not sons of God. They're men, unrighteous men. But they've been been commissioned by a righteous man. And because they were followers of Jesus, God imputed righteousness unto them even before Jesus made the sacrifice for them. Their choice to follow Jesus gave them authority over sickness, over disease, and over evil spirits. It wasn't any righteousness of their own. It was simply because they accepted that Jesus was sent to the earth. At this point, they may not have even known that he was the Messiah. They may have thought, as many people did throughout the whole of Jesus' life, that he was a prophet. But that worked too. Because whatever the prophet said came to pass. And Jesus gave them authority that enabled them to heal sickness and disease and to cast out devils. Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. 
Behold, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing by, shall by any means hurt you. Notice verse 9, I translated the word of power into the word authority. Look it up for yourself. It means authority. Now, the other time the word power is used there, it's a different word. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. That word power means ability. The first word power that I translated into authority means privilege. The second word power means ability. So he said, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power, the ability of the enemy. And nothing shall, I like this part of the verse better than anything, nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, folks, if we have a position, and, and what we have is better than what he delivered them for the time being, theirs was just a temporary thing. But now that Jesus has been to the cross, now that he has reconciled us unto God and made the mutual exchange, our unrighteousness and our sin for his righteousness, now that he's made that exchange, we have a better covenant established on better promises. We have a better covenant. Not just a different covenant. We have a better covenant. Now, if in order to have a better covenant, that would mean we'd have to have all the blessings and the abilities of the old covenant plus more. Otherwise, it would just be different, not better. We have a better covenant established upon better promises. So remember God's original intent. Again, I'm going back to the big picture. Thank God he's a big picture God. Amen. The big picture was simply this. We have been made in the image and the likeness of God for the purpose of having authority over the works of God's hands. And our righteousness is of him. Which means just exactly what Jesus said in John 14, 12. He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And even greater works than these shall he do. Because I go unto my Father. Even greater works than these shall, I, shall he do. Because I go unto my Father. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I think I said twice already that I was, I'd close with this. You know what it means when a preacher says he'll close with this, don't you? Obviously, absolutely nothing. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Verse 6 has always been difficult for me. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. 
if we analyze that a little bit, we know that through faith we're saved and that is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. So faith is necessary to be in the family of God. Obviously, it wouldn't please God any other way than us to be part of his family. And it says, without faith or apart from faith, it's impossible to please God, which means God expects each and every one of us to partake of, take hold of, and to participate in everything that Jesus purchased for us through his blood. But even those didn't satisfy me. But the story of the centurion opened my eyes because he understood how authority works. Speak the word only. And Jesus called that great faith. He said, I haven't found faith like that in all of Israel. Where it says without faith it's impossible to please God. It has to mean, folks, without the exercise of authority, we can't be pleasing to God. Without the exercise of authority, we can't be pleasing to God. Because that's the whole purpose that man was made for. What good is mankind if it doesn't exercise authority that the Bible says belongs to us? It's of no blessing or benefit to God and his kingdom, that's for certain. Again, the relationship between faith and authority they're really pretty much the same thing. Every word that we speak puts us in a situation just as Jesus asked the man in John chapter 5, the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, wilt thou be made whole? Every time we speak the word, we're exercising authority. We're choosing life over death. We're exercising our authority as being made in the image and likeness of God Fulfilling God's purpose. Your purpose is to make choices throughout every day of every week, of every month, of every year of your life to be making choices for God over the devil, for life over death. And that's what pleases God. The thing that pleases God is the exercise of authority. By the spoken word, to put yourself solely and surely in God's camp and not the world's. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It tells us the story of how the world was created. How did that work? God said, and it was. The world's and everything that we're in uh, therein was created by the spoken word. And that's the only way to please God. I don't care what it looks like, folks. I don't care what your situation is, how critical your situation is. I don't care how long-lasting your situation has been. We have one and only one responsibility, and that is to choose God by the words of our mouth. And all of heaven backs up those words. Don't let the devil lie to you about who you are. Don't let the devil lie to you about who God is. Speak God's word. And walk in the authority that's been given to us. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, where do we start? You've been so good to us. You are so good to us. You've provided so much for us. Jesus paid such an awful price. An awful price paid for a wonderful result. And that is making us righteous. So we say, because we're in Christ, we are a new species of being. We are the righteousness of God. Healing and health belongs to us. Forgiveness of sins. Life over death. Blessing over cursing. That's our choice, Lord. We choose to take hold of everything that belongs to us. Satan, you've now been exposed. You have no power over the people of God. You have no power to oppress our bodies. For our, both our bodies and our spirits were bought with the price, the precious blood of Jesus. So we command you to go. We speak God's word. Knowing that we've been given authority over all the works of your hands. We break your power over our lives. We break your power over our bodies. We break your power over our finances. We break your power in the name of Jesus. And we declare that we are free. We declare that we enjoy this life. The life that God intended the righteous men and women of God to live. Thank you, Father, that the law of sin and death has been broken by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Teach us, Holy Spirit. Teach us. Bring to our remembrance what Jesus has said to us. Bring the word to our remembrance so that when we speak it, we can walk in freedom. Show us things to come, Holy Spirit. That we might be worthy vessels, vessels of honor. able to be used by our Father. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Folks, God's not playing at this stuff. When it says he made us righteous, he really did. When he gave us authority, he really did. We are therefore free. We may not look free. We may not feel free. But bless God, we are free. And everything in our lives, everything in our bodies has to line up with the truth of God's word. Because we are free. Hallelujah. Well, you better stand up or I'll keep preaching. Let's lift our hands and thank God for the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. Father, it's so good to be free. So good to not be under the bondage of the enemy. It's so good to know that every chain has been broken. Thank you, Father, that we are the healed of God.
we are the righteous of God, righteousness of God. Thank you that we are made rich by Jesus' poverty. And that your peace is ours. Thank you for all of these things, Father. For everything Jesus did. Because it is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, God bless you, folks. Have a great day. Come back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can.